Hi and welcome to this latest episode from 1914 to 1918war.com. In this episode we'll be doing our usual look at some upcoming anniversaries and then we'll be into the second part of the Battle of Dogger Bank. Hope you enjoy the show. Everything you hold for files is at stake. We begin this episode with a look at some upcoming anniversaries. Uh, these are over the next two weeks. So uh, on December the 7th, 1914, the British battle cruisers Inflexible and Invincible uh, arrive at the Falkland Islands. Uh, they've been sent south uh, to the South Atlantic to deal with uh, Admiral Spey, who's uh, been making a nuisance of himself. And as we were hearing last episode in a build-up to the Battle of Dogger Bank, on December the 16th, German naval vessels shelled Scarborough, Whitby and Hartlepool. Jumping ahead to December 1915, on December the 4th, uh, General Conrad, uh, speaking to Count Titza, uh, said there can be no question of destroying the Russian war machine, as he realised the scale of the task ahead of him. And on December the 7th, uh, the British cabinet uh, decided to evacuate troops on Suvla and Anzac bays in the Gallipoli campaign. And that operation got underway the very next day on December the 8th. On December the 15th, 1915, General Falkenhayn uh, wrote to the Kaiser about his plans to attack the French at Verdun, uh, saying, the forces of France will bleed to death. And continuing that theme, December the 15th, 1916, so a year later, the French launch a major attack at Verdun, capturing 11,000 prisoners and 115 heavy guns. Jumping ahead to 1917 now, on the 6th of December, Finland declared independence from Russia. And then on December the 9th, 1917, the Bolsheviks declared war on the Cossacks in southern Russia as the bitter internal war gathered pace. And then on December the 11th, uh, General Allenby entered Jerusalem. Um, interestingly, he chose to uh, go into the city on foot rather than on horseback uh, as a show that he was not there as a conqueror, uh, which was a pretty smart propaganda move. And then on December the 14th, 1917, Lloyd George gave a speech where he stated there was no halfway house between victory and defeat. That brings us to the end of our selection of uh, anniversaries for the week. Let's get on with the main event, which is our exploration of the Battle of Dogger Bank. The Battle of Dogger Bank, part two. See the previous episode if you want the part one. In January 1915, the Germans moved to address concerns over the activity of British fishing vessels in the North Sea, which they suspected were acting as an early warning system to detect German naval activity. Hipper proposed a new operation to lay mines across the Firth of Forth with the idea of disrupting shipping based at Rosyth. As a part of the mine laying operation, as the fishing grounds around Dogger Bank lay between the German bases and the target area along the British northeastern coast, Hipper's battle cruisers would deal with any British fishing vessels encountered. 
The German force consisted of the five main battleships, ranging in size and power from the Blücher, launched in 1908 and weighing 15,842 tons and carrying 8-inch guns, up to the Derflinger, launched in 1913, weighing 28,000 tons and carrying 12-inch guns. These heavily armoured ships were each protected by 11- and 12-inch armour. As well as these ships, Hipper requested additional support from the High Seas Fleet under Ingenol, but his request was refused because some of the ships were undergoing repairs and Ingenol thought that the main fleet wouldn't be needed for the raid envisaged. Ingenol's decision was based on the erroneous assumption that Beatty's battlecruisers were still in Scarpa flow and Hipper's battlecruisers would be strong enough to handle anything that the British sent out of Resythe. On the 23rd of January at 5.45pm, just after dark, the German battlecruisers, four light cruisers and 18 torpedo boats put to sea to carry out the raid. Before they sailed, Room 40 had picked up a radio message sent to Hipper's flagship, the Seidlitz, and had warned that the raid was coming. Admiral of the fleet Henry Oliver interpreted the intelligence to mean two things that the German High Seas Fleet would not be a part of the raid, and that the raid would be similar to the Scarborough raid in December. Accordingly, he decided that Beatty's battlecruisers and Tirrit's light cruisers and destroyers should rendezvous at Dogger Bank to screen the northeastern coastline and prevent the attack. Positioned to protect the coastline from a Scarborough-style raid, it meant that their path would be directly on the route that Hipper was taking from the Jade towards his actual destination to lay mines on the Firth of Forth. In addition to the lighter forces, the British Grand Fleet would conduct a sweep across the North Sea, but with a departure time of 9am, and proceeding relatively slowly, it was to miss any possible encounter completely. The British ships left their bases at around the same time as the German fleet, unknowingly heading towards each other. The British battleships were of similar ages to the German fleet, ranging from the Indomitable, launched in 1908, through to HMS Tiger, launched in 1913, and were generally of greater tonnage. However, the British ships tended to carry much heavier calibre guns, generally carrying 12 and 13 and a half inch guns, instead of the German 11 inch guns carried by the Vondertan, Moltke and Seiglitz. Only the Durflinger itself carried 12-inch guns. On paper, the British ships were the superior side, but as the old joke goes, the battle would be fought at sea and not on paper. Once underway, Hipper, attempting to make life easier for his smaller torpedo boats in the sea conditions, steered further north than he'd originally intended, but in a less westerly direction. This lucky accident was to aid his escape later. At 7.04am, while it was still dark, the light cruiser, SMS Kohlberg, and one of Tirrit's light cruisers, HMS Aurora, were the first ships to see each other. Aurora challenged the Kohlberg, which promptly opened fire. The Aurora then sent a rather vague signal to Beatty, saying, I'm in action with the German fleet. In the exchange, both ships were hit. Kohlberg was on the port left-hand side of the German fleet, and Hipper swung his heavier ships towards the British force, believing that there were only smaller enemy ships in the area, and his superior force would have little trouble dealing with them. As the German force completed its turn, the German ship the Starsland spotted smoke from Beatty's force 
as it approached from the northeast. At 7.35am, Hipper decided that things were not looking quite as he'd planned and the raid needed to be abandoned, and swung his force to the south, heading for the German Bight and the safety of home. Thinking that Beatty's force were battleships and that his cruisers could outrun them, he headed for home, only realising that his pursuers were of the faster battlecruisers when the range began to shorten. The German armoured cruiser Blücher, with a top speed of around 23 to 24 knots, several knots slower than the other German ships, was the rearmost ship of Hipper's column and was the most exposed to the approaching British. Ahead of Blücher were the Durflinger and Moltke with sidelets leading the way. At 8.34am, Beatty ordered his ships to increase their speed to 27 knots. Not all of his ships were actually capable of this speed, and Beatty's fastest ships, the Lion, Tiger and Princess Royal, pulled ahead of the New Zealand and Indomitable as they raced to catch the Germans. Beatty, determined to catch up with the Germans, ordered his ships to make 29 knots, a speed that was beyond the capability of any of his ships. You have to admire his enthusiasm, I suppose. However, the German ship Blücher was struggling to keep up with the rest of the German fleet and along with a number of slower coal-fired torpedo boats, began to lag behind. Meanwhile, before the battlecruisers could open fire, the British lighter forces tried to manoeuvre into position to make an attack, but the speed of the encounter was too much for them, and in trying to make that speed, they were belching out so much smoke that it was interfering with the visibility of Beatty's larger ships, and they needed that visibility to engage the Germans with their long-range guns. Beatty ordered them away. Beatty's flagship, HMS Lion, optimistically opened fire on the Blücher at 8.52am, but the German ship was still out of range. By 9am, the range had shortened to 20,000 yards, and Lion opened fire again. Then, as Princess Royal and Tiger came into range, they all joined in, all aiming at Blücher, which was hit at 9.09am. Lagging behind, New Zealand would only fire 43 minutes later, with the Indomitable coming into range a full two hours after the first exchanges. The Germans returned fire when the range was reduced to 18,000 yards, focusing on Lion. Their view of the enemy was impeded by clouds of smoke pouring from their own funnels. At 9.35am, Beatty, with a number of ships within range equal on each side, ordered each of his ships to focus their fire on the equivalent German ship in the two lines, switching Lion's fire to the sidelets, signalling engage the corresponding ship in the enemy's line, he intended that each enemy target would be engaged and therefore less capable of accurate return fire. At 9.43am, the Lion straddled sidelets. Unfortunately, following the command to distribute their fire, Tiger, when identifying her target, assumed that the Indomitable formed part of the calculation, giving the British five ships to the German four. But the Indomitable was not yet in range, and therefore Tiger picked the wrong ship. Making the assumption that she should engage sidelets alongside Lion, Tiger opened fire on the sidelets. This meant that sidelets was now under attack from two ships, but the Moltke was unengaged, and able to fire her guns unmolested. Both the sidelets and the Moltke concentrated their fire on Beatty's flagship, Lion. 
In addition to misinterpreting her orders, Lion also struggled to observe the fall of her own gunfire, mistaking the splashes from Lion's gunnery for her own, resulting in inaccurate gunnery corrections, although in the heavy seas this was perhaps the more understandable failing than attacking the wrong ship. At 9.50am, Lion hit the Seidlitz, penetrating her deck and causing an ammunition fire which shot flames into the sky and disabled her rear gun turret. The rear turret was knocked out of action, and because a blast door had been left open, fire spread into the next turret and down towards the magazines. 159 men were killed, and only rapid action to flood both the affected magazines saved the ship, allowing her to continue her course with only her forward guns available to engage the enemy. Minutes later, Beatty reduced speed to a relatively slow 24 knots to allow his battlecruisers to close together. As Tiger shifted her attentions to the Blucher, Lion now found itself under fire from the Moltke, the Derflinger and the Seidlitz's remaining guns. Felsen Young, stationed in the Lion's foretop, the lookout post in the masts, later described his view. One could clearly see the flashes of salvos from Seidlitz and Moltke, both of which were firing at Lion, and, timing their flight with a stopwatch, know to a second when their arrival would be signalled either by an explosion or by the uprising of a group of lovely, enormous fountain blossoms, where the water slowly rose up in columns 200 feet high that mushroomed out at the top, stood for five or ten seconds, and then as gracefully subsided, deluging our decks with tons of water. It was strange to think, observing those flashes and the little black second hand ticking around the dial of the watch, I have perhaps 23 seconds to live. When the little hand reaches that mark, then oblivion. At 9.55am, Hipper signalled back to the high seas fleet, need assistance badly, but with an estimated time of arrival of 2.30pm, the fleet was too far away to have a chance of assisting in battle. Over the next 20 minutes, the combined German fire took its toll on the British flagship, and at 10.18am, Derflinger hit the Lion twice. Under fire from three German battlecruisers, the Lion was hit 15 times in the next half an hour. The ship lost electrical power, and shell splinters damaged the fresh water supply to the boilers, allowing salt water in that began to clog the pipes. With shells piercing her armour, the Lion began to list at an angle of 10 degrees, and her port side engine had to be shut down, reducing her speed to a paltry 15 knots, allowing the Princess Royal and the Tiger to pass. By now, Blucher, her speed greatly reduced by the damage she'd suffered, had begun to drop further behind, falling out of the German line. Beatty ordered the slower Indomitable to engage the damaged ship. Beatty's ability to communicate with his forces was greatly reduced by this stage. Damage to the radio antenna and signal lamps meant that he could only use signal flags. Even his ability to signal using such Napoleonic technology was reduced as the Lion only possessed two signalling halyards that hadn't been shot away. Visibility of the signal flags was further reduced by the smoke and the wind direction presenting the flags end-on to the ship's astern of the Lion. Now more confusion ensued. A suspected periscope sighting at 10.54am 
caused BT, in line with fleet operational procedures, to order a sharp turn of 90 degrees to avoid the threat. After the event, BT claimed that he personally observed the wash of a periscope, and he no doubt felt justified in making the evasive manoeuvre, but it's worth noting that he was the only officer to see the submarine. Unfortunately, rather than just turning the lion, he ordered the entire line of battle to change direction, and as he was unable to communicate why he'd ordered such a radical change of direction to the other ships, it may have looked like he was attempting to break off the engagement. As luck would have it, the confusion caused by Beatty's sudden turn also confused the German side, and Hipper, who had been planning a torpedo boat attack to disrupt the British advance, was thrown off his stride by the unexpected British action and called the attack off. Now, Beatty, wanting to use his three remaining operational battle cruisers to greatest effect, he tried to instruct the Tiger, Princess Royal and New Zealand to swing back after the retreating Germans. Signalling course northeast, Beatty intended to have his ships engage the main body of the enemy, but the flag signals book didn't have a signal that clearly expressed that command. The closest alternative that could be found was attack the rear of the enemy. Unfortunately, at this point, a signalling error meant that the previous flag order to head northeast wasn't recalled, and as a result, when the new order was hoisted, it became merged with the previous signal. The new signal, which said, attack the rear of the enemy heading northeast, implied that the fleet should turn their guns on the Blucher, which was the only enemy ship in that direction. Beatty's inability to signal his intention to the fleet meant that he was forced to watch as his best ships broke off the main action and focused their attention on the lightly armoured, undergunned and already badly damaged Blucher, which by this stage posed no threat at all. With Beatty's flagship lagging behind and with him unable to command, Rear Admiral Moore took over, but not for some time, and for a while there was some doubt about who was in command. Moore considered whether it was worth giving chase, but with a likely two-hour timescale to catch the German ships, and with the risk that he would meet the German high seas fleet coming out to support them, he decided against it. Meanwhile, the Blucher took a pounding. As a German survivor wrote, The shells came thick and fast with a horrible droning hum. The electric plant was destroyed, and you could not see your hand before your nose. The shells bored their way even to the stokehold. The coal in the bunkers was set on fire. In the engine room, a shell licked up the oil and sprayed it around in flames of blue and green, scarring its victims. The terrific air pressure resulting from the explosion in a confined space roars through every opening and tears through every weak spot, and through it all the bodies of men are whirled about like dead leaves to be battered to death against the iron walls. And as this brutal but pointless action played out, the remainder of the German fleet made its escape. HMS Arethusa went to deliver a coup de grace against Blucher, firing her torpedoes and incidentally damaged HMS Meteor in the process. Then, now that it was obvious that Blucher was incapable of fighting and was beginning to sink, the operation shifted towards rescuing the Blucher's crew. In case the Blucher's crew hadn't suffered enough, though, while the rescue operation was underway, 
Zeppelin Z5 and a seaplane bombed proceedings. At 12.07, the Blucher keeled over and sank, with only 237 men out of the 1,200-man crew being rescued. The ship had put up a remarkable fight and was honoured in the British official history with the following words. As an example of discipline, courage and fighting spirit, her last hours have seldom been surpassed. At 10.50am, Beatty transferred to HMS Attack, a fast destroyer, with the intent of transferring his flag to the Princess Royal and continuing his command of the battle from there. But by the time he'd managed his transfer at 12.33pm, there was no more enemy to fight. With the distance to the German ships now at about 30,000 yards, they were well out of range and heading for home, and probably into the protective safekeeping of the German high seas fleet and German coastal waters. The Grand Fleet, which had come out on a sweep of the North Sea, now returned to Scarpa Flow, but Jellicoe detached his destroyer screen to protect the Lion as she limped back into port. Lion returned to the Firth of Forth, protected by 37 light cruisers and 67 destroyers. And so the first battle to be fought between Dreadnought-class ships ended without a significant outcome. Analysis of the battle tends to focus on the British side. This is the correct approach, as the Germans didn't want a major engagement, hence the onus was on the British to engage and make their victory certain. The battle was pronounced a victory by the British press, and on the face of it, it was. The Germans had lost the Blucher, had lost around a 1,000 men killed and wounded, compared to just over a 100 casualties on the British side. Given the disparity in the forces, Beatty should have won a conclusive victory though, but fundamental issues in the British Navy's organisation, equipment, doctrine and operational procedures conspired to allow the Germans to escape. Organisationally, a gulf existed between the naval intelligence and the commanders on the water. Whilst Room 40, the intelligence gathering uh, operation at the Admiralty, was able to warn that the German raid was coming, they didn't share their knowledge that the Germans wouldn't be supported by a concentrated submarine force. If this information had been supplied to Beatty, perhaps he would have been less risk-averse and therefore less inclined to disrupt his pursuit when reacting to a potential periscope sighting. The advent of modern wireless communication had allowed the Admiralty to exert greater control over its forces than was traditionally exercised. We see this before the battle when Jellicoe was ordered not to send the Grand Fleet out for the German raid. As such, local commanders became used to centralised command and less likely to act when circumstance demanded it. The Royal Navy demanded great things from its commanders, but reliance on close control from the flagship meant that individual ships' commanders felt unable to use their initiative. As Lyon's ability to communicate was degraded by battle damage with the loss of wireless, the emphasis shifted to flag communication, which was woefully inadequate. Whilst we have the benefit of hindsight and years of scholarly research to help our assessment, the British were blind to some of the issues raised by the Dogger Bank encounter, and those issues were to be carried forward to the larger and more important battle at Jutland. Organisational issues relating to intelligence and operational departments were neglected. The flag signals book was tweaked 
reinstating the heroic instruction to engage the enemy more closely, which would have encouraged the battlecruisers to attack the main body. But these measures didn't address the contradictions in the communication systems. Admiral Archibald Moore, who'd been in command after the Lion dropped out of the battle, took much of the blame and was sidelined, and Captain Henry Pelly, commanding the Tiger, was also criticised for not acting aggressively enough, but he escaped sanction as it was widely known that the Tiger's crew was below the standard expected. Beatty told his subordinates that from now on he would rely on captains to use all the information at their disposal to grasp the situation quickly and anticipate his wishes. But this would only apply within his areas of responsibility and didn't address the issues across the Navy. One can't also help but think that Beatty may be deflecting a bit of blame at this point. Admiral Fisher, commanding the Admiralty, continued to doubt Beatty's performance, asking him, why didn't you get the lot? But Beatty was riding high in the course of public opinion and was able to survive the criticisms. The issues with the command, control and communication side of the battle meant that serious deficiencies in gunnery weren't addressed. Admiral Jackie Fisher had built the Dreadnought fleet on the basis that bigger guns would win wars over greater ranges than had been possible until now. The Battle of Dogger Bank had been fought at such a long range. The opening salvos were fired when out of range and then recommenced at extreme range with the effective fire taking place between 20,000 yards, that's 18.28 kilometres, and 16,000 yards, 14.6 kilometres. The word effective is doing a lot of heavy lifting there. The British battlecruisers fired 1,150 shells and scored 76 hits, a hit rate of 6.6%. Given the conditions, you might be forgiven for thinking that's not too bad. But of the 76 hits, let's forget that about 70 of those were fired into the helpless Blucher once the British had broken off the main action. Just six shells were accurate in the main battle a success rate of 0.5%. Lyon fired 243 shells and struck the enemy four times, a hit rate of 1.6%. But Tiger fired 355 shells during the main battle and hit the enemy just once, a hit rate of 0.3%. In contrast, the German ships fired 976 shells and hit the British 22 times, a hit rate of 2.25%. Putting aside the difficulties in observing the fall of shot at such ranges, and the lack of information forthcoming from the Germans about deficiencies in the armour-piercing capabilities of British shells, the main British reaction was to increase the range of the fleet's gunnery practice to a more realistic 16,000 yards. Most of the British fleet was not equipped with director equipment to coordinate their gunfire in organised salvos and this reduced efficiency. HMS Tiger was using a gunfire director system but because her gunnery was generally poor for other reasons the equipment was not seen as being especially valuable and implementation wasn't progressed as fast as it should have been. It was acknowledged that hitting moving targets from the moving platform at extreme range was never going to be easy, and a simplistic solution was found. If the rate of fire was increased, then a few lucky shots that did land on the enemy would be increased. As such, gunnery instruction within the fleet 
emphasised rate of fire, with much effort being poured into gun-loading drills. Whilst this kind of makes sense, you can't help but think this is harkening back to the olden days of two galleons siding up side by side and pummeling each other, and whoever could fire the first and the fastest got the most shots in. Unfortunately, in order to increase the rate of fire, shortcuts were introduced, such as keeping charges to hand in the turrets and keeping fire control blast doors open to allow ammunition to be moved more efficiently. These measures traded safety for speed without addressing the real need for more accurate gunnery. Beatty's additional after-action observation that a number of German shells that struck the British failed to explode, and those that did often failed to penetrate the armour, led to a complacency over battle damage and fire controls, which was to have tragic results in the Battle of Jutland. Lyon had taken significant damage during the battle, and after the, afterwards she was repaired, strengthened and her fire controls improved, but crucially these improvements were not rolled out to other ships in the fleet. As a result, the survivability of the overall fleet was overestimated and was not improved. On the German side, in contrast, the Battle of Dogger Bank acted as a wake-up call. The range at which the battle had been fought had upended German assumptions and the loss of the Blucher revealed the obsolescence of any under-armoured and under-armed ships if they encountered the British fleet. The German Navy, in contrast to the British, examined the battle, especially the damage to the sidelets, and applied the lessons to their fleet. Offensively, the elevation of the guns was increased to eke out extra range and heavier guns were introduced. Defensively, armour was increased on the decks, turrets and magazines to protect against plunging fire and the amount of ready ammunition held in turrets was reduced to reduce the impact of a direct hit. Fire controls were improved and the danger of explosive flashes spreading through ventilation ducts was prevented. In modern parlance, the German fleet was hardened. In fact, the only area where the Germans didn't improve their capability was in solving the mystery about why they just happened to bump into the British in the middle of the sea. They just seemed to have a blind spot about the possibility that their signalling and codes may have been compromised. Instead, they assumed there must be a spy re relaying all their movements to the British Admiralty. So, who won the Battle of Dogger Bank? Tactically, the British had the only clear win of the day, sinking the Blucher, a largely obsolete, undergunned and underprotected armour cruiser that you could argue shouldn't have been at sea at all that day. The damage to the Lion was repaired, as was that to the Saglets, which was probably lucky to survive. When Beatty clambered aboard the Princess Royal, he was dismayed to learn that instead of multiple German sinkings, there were none. He knew he should have achieved more at this tactical level, but strategically, perhaps the outcome is clearer. The Germans retreated to their harbours, Ingonol was fired, and the British retained control of the sea. Considering these factors, we have to give the victory to the Royal Navy, but its failure to learn from the errors and failings evident at the Battle of Dogger Bank were to bite hard later in the war. Hope you've enjoyed that uh, look at the Battle of Dogger Bank. It was a good one to write. As always, in a spirit of shameless self-promotion, please share this on with uh, other people who you think might like it. A uh, bigger audience is very encouraging. And I'll talk to you all next episode. Thanks a lot. Bye.